Good morning again. It is good to be with you all again, and it's an honor to be able to open God's Word with you. If you're going to open up and turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, we are in chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 13. Listen for the voice of the Lord. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods or many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you in idols' temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. The word of the Lord. It's part of me that almost feels like that doesn't require a sermon. I mean, it's, Paul lays it out pretty well, but I will do my best to try to bring a bit more perspective to it, if the Lord allows Are you religious? If somebody asked you that question, are you religious, what would your answer be? It's probably a variety. To a certain degree, it might depend on the context. I actually was at a friend's 40th birthday party last night and sitting next to a young couple, I asked them if they were religious. And what I meant by it was, do you follow any religion, whether nominally or not. They said no. But they did have their kids baptized. A little over 10 years ago, a guy named Jeff Bethke, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, wrote a poem, a spoken word poem that went viral at the time, called, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. 
I remember first listening to that and thinking, eh, this little young whippersnapper, what does he know? But there's this idea that we kind of associate with religion sometimes, that religion often, when we use it, refers to a, a kind of practice, things that we do, ceremonies. From the very beginning of time, people believed in gods, and there were certain ceremonies involved in it. There were sacrifices made, ceremonies, different types of clothing, laws, rules. And there are many in the world that have come to think of religion in this way. It's a, a pattern of rules that we follow and a way that we live our life. To a certain degree, this was the problem of the Pharisees. That religion of the Pharisees meant I have to do this. I have to look like this. I have to follow this and speak in this way. That is my religious belief. And what it really became was legalism. Then Christ comes. He kind of shows up the Pharisees several times. And we get this teaching about freedom in Christ. That we are saved by grace alone. By faith in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? I'm pretty sure a lot of you would say yes. But what does that mean? Does it mean intellectually you make a claim and that's all there is to it? Or is there something attached to that belief? I know a great many people that say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And everything that I'm doing right now that is completely what the Bible would call sinful, well, it's fine because Jesus has forgiven me already. And of course, the more that I sin, the more grace abounds, right? This is what Paul said in the book of Romans. Of course, Paul also says, what shall we say? Shall we sin more so that grace may abound? And by no means was Paul's response. There is a bit of space between legalism and Christian liberty, or some might call it antinomianism, where we are to walk as believers. But where is that place and how do we find it? And I believe that Paul gives us a bit of insight in that in this uh, eighth chapter of the letter to the first Corinthians. One thing we must point out here is that this is a letter to Corinthians because they were having problems. And the kinds of problems that they were having were divisive problems. There are many divisions within the church. Sound familiar? As we enter 2024, you can't look anywhere without seeing division. We can look to our own Christian Reformed Church denomination and see the division there. We can look in our own country and see it there. We can look in the East. We can look in the Middle East. Everywhere there's division and there's sides and you're supposed to take a side somewhere. How do we find that? And interesting that stuck out to me this week is the gospel reading for today that we didn't read is from the gospel of Mark where Jesus casts out an evil spirit and the temple. An evil spirit and the temple. There have always been evil spirits and the temples. And we can break that down where Paul teaches in Corinthians that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, even within ourselves, there are these spirits of evil tempting us to go different ways. 
And always within our churches, there have been spirits of evil trying to divide us. And this is what Paul is speaking into when he's talking about food sacrifice to idols. You have some people saying, well, we know for sure that there are no idols. It doesn't make a difference. It doesn't matter what these other people are saying. And it's interesting to me how Paul starts out this chapter. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. If I went to each and every one of you in this room and I asked you, what do you know? Surely each of you would be able to give me something. I know two plus two is four. Some of us might go farther with what we know or what we believe that we know, but we would all claim to have some kind of knowledge. And to a certain degree, Paul rebuffs that right away and says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. How often does knowledge puff us up? Yesterday, I was uh, taking my son and some of his friends to Legoland for my son's birthday. I don't know that I'll ever do that again. <laughs> but one of the little eight-year-old boys in the car said, eh, Superman's one of the lamest superheroes there is. Turned off the radio, pulled over to the side. Young man, we have to talk. Because I have knowledge about Superman. And don't you come at my knowledge of Superman with your frivolous talk of lameness. My knowledge puffs me up sometimes. Anyone who knows me will attest to this. Praise God for his grace. But love builds up. He, he creates this contrast here. Because again, it's not bad to have knowledge. All of us are seeking knowledge. That is a good thing. But he's creating this contrast between knowledge and love. Knowledge does this thing. Love does something else. Knowledge can be inward edifying. Love is outwardly edifying. And so he says, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know what he ought to know. And again, it's not addressing simple things. If I think I know two plus two is four, that doesn't mean I'm missing something deeper in my life. But he's making a point about the way that we approach our knowledge. He contrasts that with, but the man who loves God is known by God. The man who prioritizes God above everything is known by God. So then about this eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that idols don't exist. We know that there's no special God within that crafted item. So what does it matter? But people, there are people who don't know that. There are people who have gotten so accustomed to that that they believe weird things. Before I was born, way years ago, my grandmother practiced santeria. I don't know if you guys know what santeria is, but it's a form of witchcraft popular in Latin America. Years later, when my parents became Christians, eventually my grandmother also became Christian. But she had little weird quirks because of the years that she spent practicing Santeria. When she was much older, she had to get like an eye transplant. So she had somebody else's eyes in there. And she kept believing the spirit of the person whose eyes were, oh, they're trying to make me have a bad day today. Stuff like that. 
Very interesting. But that happens to people. And Paul describes these people as weaker brothers. Now, there's half of that term that we like and that we can focus on pretty easily sometimes. Those people that think that other thing, that haven't come to the same knowledge that I have, the knowledge that has puffed me up, those people are, in fact, weaker. Yes, that means I am stronger. Awesome. But he doesn't just describe them as weaker people. He describes them as weaker brothers. Many of us have siblings. I have four. There's something different about when my brother disagrees with me than some stranger on the street. There's a connection I have with my siblings that I can't necessarily escape from. My sister will always be my sister. My brothers will always be my brothers. And I care about them. When they are wrong in ways that I feel are harmful, I don't want to win the fight. I want them to see truth. I want to build them up. This phenomenon kind of, my eyes were open to this when I had children. And when my children were old enough to play games. My wife is a ruthless game player. We almost broke up while we were dating, while playing a game of Ticket to Ride. And when she plays games with my kids, she shows no mercy. She just goes at them. And it gets me a little upset sometimes because I'm, you're making it not fun for the kids. And if you don't make it fun, they're never going to want to play. When I play with my kids, they always win. And my wife gets mad at me because she says, you're not building them up. You're not teaching them how to be better. And so there's this space in between where we don't want to crush them, but we also don't want them to remain weak. As a father, I want my kids to grow and be strong, but I know they're not strong yet. And what guides me along in my parenting is that I love my kids. And that love makes me want to build them up. When they mess up in a game or when they mess up in life, I don't say, you suck! And nor do I say, oh, it's fine. But I use it as an opportunity to get closer to them. Because we are close. Because we are family. I think what Paul's trying to get at here is that now that we claim Christ, we are a family. We are one body. And so a lot of times when we talk about weaker brothers believing this stuff, a lot of times we're conceptualizing. We're thinking about this idea, this hypothetical person. And what he's trying to get us to do is think about your actual weaker brother. Think about the person that you know intimately that might be struggling with these issues. Deal with them, not the hypothetical. I deal with this all the time growing up in the, the city, in the urban environment. Everybody loves to talk about urban minorities, but they always talk about them in the hypothetical. Puerto Ricans must eat this, and they must dance to this, and they must believe this. If you're poor, you must think this, and you must need this. Because of the conceptual, we're thinking in the conceptual. But actual poor people are individuals and may need different things. And to know what they would need, you have to know them. They have to become your brother. They have to become your family. 
And so I look to some of the division that goes on in our church, some of the division that was there with the Corinthians, the division that goes on in our countries, and a lot of it seems to stem from this idea of thinking of everything and everyone on this conceptual level. This person's a rich person. The rich are just this group. The poor are this group. Republicans are this group. Democrats are this group. Independents, they're there somewhere. But it prevents us from engaging with the realness of our people. Even within our denomination, we're having a huge dispute right now. And it's continuing. 2024 is going to be a very interesting thing for our denomination. It's going to be an interesting thing for our country. How do we as believers move forward and represent Christ? One thing that really stuck out to me is when Paul says to these people, we know that the idols are not real, but that there is only one God. That our God is real. Not only is our God real, but our God took on flesh. He came down to be one of us on the form of Jesus Christ, and Jesus was real. And Jesus died, and Jesus was resurrected, and Jesus is still alive. So we not only believe in a God that is real, but a God that was embodied, and a God that is still alive and with us today. A God that we can ask questions to. A God that can humble us when we think we're so smart. And we are encouraged to put this God above everything. Following God above everything. This is the idea where Christian liberty goes wrong. It's like, well, I can do all the things that make me happy. But what God's saying is, you don't even know what makes you happy. You only think you do. But I created you, and I am real, and I know what makes you happy. I know what gives you meaning, and I know what gives you purpose. And I sent my son to illustrate that in real terms. I didn't always like this story, the Jesus story. I like the aftermath. I like the resurrection. I don't like the death part. I don't like the idea that I would be called to take up my cross and follow him. But once I started thinking about what that means, the cross, suffering, terror, death, But there's victory on the other side. A victory that for a long time people didn't see. I think of those disciples in those three days when Jesus was in the tomb. What they felt. Awful. Not knowing the future. But because of that terror, what it must have felt like when they finally encountered the risen Christ. That is meaning. That is happiness. And as I've lived my life, and lost friends and loved ones, what brings me joy is knowing that this life is not all that there is. That there is going to be a resurrection, that we will meet again. And that's on the grand scale. But now, if I apply that same principle to when I'm in a petty argument about things that I think I know about across the world, I don't want to lose that fight. There's part of me, I have to win. But what Christ has taught me is that 
it's okay for me to lose the fight. I don't have to win all the time. But I have to love my brother. And sometimes loving my brother means they lose. Sometimes loving my brother means I lose. I don't always know which one is which, but I know that I want to love my brother. And loving my brother means I have to know my brother. I have to get intimate with my brother. I have to not want to let go. And so I want to encourage you as we get through this very polarizing year, both in the church and in the greater world, look for ways to love your brother. Even your brother that's different than you. And I don't mean cater to your brother or sister for that matter. Not cater, give them everything they want. That's not real love. But how do I build up my brothers and my sisters? How do I sacrificially build them up? How do I seek to build them up? Not seek to let them win and not seek to crush them, but seek to get them on the right path towards God. This past summer, I was invited to speak on a panel for a group in our denomination called the Abide Project. It's a very polarizing group. But they invited me to be on the panel. I said, I'll be there. And, it, and what I noticed was this tendency for a lot of people to speak about how do we remove certain churches and church members? And I'll admit, there was part of me that was like, yeah! But as they were talking, there was this feeling, and when I got the chance to speak, I said, what is it, would it be like to look at our brothers and sisters that we don't, that we believe are in sin? That we believe are going down a wrong path? And try to bring them back. And try not to let go. And try not to say, good riddance. Sometimes that is the right choice. Sometimes that's the path you have to take. But what is it like to say, I will go down into the depths with you and try to bring you back from that? Because this is what Christ did for us. He came down into this place called earth, into these stinky flesh. And let me tell you, back then, it was stinky. But he took all that on because he loves us that deeply. And he didn't cater. He didn't tell the Pharisees, you know, you're kind of right. You know you have a point. But he did his best to build up his people. But in the week, in your interactions this week, many of you are going to go to school, you're going to go to work, you're going to visit family members. You're going to see people, friends. What does it mean to love them? What does it mean to consider their situation and want to build them up? And not in the easy way. Oh, they said that thing again. I'm just going to let it slide. Maybe you don't let it slide. Say, hey, tell me more. Let's talk about this. Let's argue for a bit. Why? Because I love you. And I think I love you enough and our relationship is important enough that we can duke it out for a little bit. It's not an easy thing to do because our flesh gets in the way. But one of the beautiful things that I came across this week, I'm preparing for a study on the Heidelberg Catechism. 
And then at section three, it talks about how we are to show appreciation for the gift of God. It addresses the other things that we have to do. And I love the way that it words it. And I can't say this from memory because I haven't memorized it yet. But it basically is saying that it is Christ working in us. If we are genuine believers, if we are part of the church, if we are part of the body of God, then his spirit dwells within us. And it is his spirit that is working the good in us. It is his spirit creating the actions in us. In your interactions, do you believe that? We say we believe it oftentimes. It's not me, but Christ in me. We say those things, but do we? When I interact with my brother and my sister, am I becoming reliant on my knowledge? Or am I relying on the Spirit of Christ in me? Do I really believe that the Spirit of Christ in me that is actually going to do something there? Because maybe he might. Maybe you start this place that looks like it's going to be a huge argument and a huge fight, and maybe we'll never talk together again, but the Spirit of God intervenes because the Spirit of God knows you intimately at your depths, and he knows your weaker brother as well. And the Spirit of God knows what you need, and it knows what he or she needs, and knows what they need, and knows what everybody needs. So I encourage you, lay your flesh down. Open yourself to the leading of God's Spirit. And do not let your knowledge puff you up. Do not let your love cater or destroy. But let the love of Christ in you build up your brothers and your sisters. Amen. Please pray. We good? Are we on? Please pray with me. Most holy and exalted Father, we come before you this morning with praise and thanks. We praise you, God, for your awesome works. Whether it's the foggiest day like we've had this week or the clearest night, we know that you created it and that you are always near. We praise you for being a merciful God that we can have a close relationship with. We give you thanks, Father, for all the blessings you've poured out on us. We give you thanks for our church here in Lombard, its staff, and the many volunteers that make it possible to worship. We give you thanks for the ministries and committees at our church. We thank you for being at the center of them. Lord, as our Sunday school youth learn about your circle of grace, we are reminded as adults that you're never far from us. You are always present, Father. We give you thanks this morning for Pastor Pacheco and that he could give us a message on knowledge and building relationships. God, we have sinned this week with our thoughts, words, or actions. We have fallen short once again and confess these sins now. Please forgive us, Lord, we pray. Lord, there are so many in our church and community that are suffering.
are suffering from illness and disease. We think especially of George Van Denen, Patty Hopp, and Ginny Jupp. Father, please grant them a measure of healing. Lord, we also pray for those who are seeking employment and those struggling with poverty. Please, God, grant them a peace that passes understanding. We pray for our shut-ins this morning as it gets more and more difficult to get to church and around in general. We think especially of Gladys Lubin and Harriet Havinga, Lord. Please be near to them and give them comfort in their time away from here. Lord, at this time of year when the church is seeking people who will serve as elders and deacons, grant us wisdom and discernment to discover who is in your will and that it will be done. Finally, Lord, we ask that you continue to pour out your many blessings on this church and the congregation. Please bless Pastor Pacheco and the many people that he reaches through his church preaching your holy and perfect word. This we pray in your most holy name. Amen.